Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. For this, the final episode of the season, I'm joined as always by the ever insightful Jake Gunderson, as well as fellow RayWenderlich.com team member and all round nice guy, Andy Abusek. Now, before we get into the discussion, I just want to let you all know that the podcast will return on June the 8th, but before that episode is published, we'll also be releasing a special one-off episode where we'll be joined by some folks from Microsoft. Now, I can't say any more than that at this time, but do keep an eye on your podcast player for when that episode services, because you won't want to miss it. Now, Andy, last time you were on, you introduced us all to the wonderful world of continuous integration. And I believe you want to talk about something just as dear to heart and test-related again for this episode. Well, your 20 minutes has begun, so over to you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm here. I'd like to talk to you guys about TDD today. Well, before you get into that, I think it's probably a good idea to uh, to back it up a minute and just explain what that acronym means. TDD, that means test-driven development. Test-driven development is a process that complements and goes right alongside with continuous integration, which is what I was on here talking about last time. And specifically, the way I remember Test what test-driven development means is, uh, I don't know, an abbreviation that's easy to memorize I, that I read somewhere. And essentially, you can sum it up in the three steps. One, red. Two, green. Three, refactor. So you might be asking, okay, well, what is red? What is green? And refactor, I can kind of guess what that is. Uncle Bob actually has stated, kind of summarized, that there's three laws of test-driven development. And that has kind of like really led to this abbreviated red-green refactor mantra. So you, you mentioned Uncle Bob. Who, who's that? I don't think I've ever heard of Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob is Robert Martin, and he's kind of one of the authorities in software engineering design principles, I guess specifically object-oriented design and an advocate for Agile methodologies. He, signed, he was one of the original signers, authors of the Agile Manifesto. And he, uh, he's got a lot of blogs so we can add to the show notes around um, you know, his continued involvement with the community. How he describes TDD is that basically you're going to start writing. When you, when you go into writing code, you're going to be writing a test first. And you can only write enough code in that test that the test is going to fail. Now, like, okay, that seems really ambiguous, but... A failure could also even mean compilation failure. Now, you're not going to, it's not as simple as like, oh, I'm going to type the letter A, A, and A doesn't compile. No, you're actually write a test function and you're going to be calling some production code. And when I talk about production code, I'm basically meaning the code under test. When, as soon as you write a line of code that calls production code that doesn't compile, then you're allowed to jump over to the production code and write only enough code to make that test pass pass means either compile or the test pass. So you're going back and forth there. And then you go back to the test and you write some more code. And you, again, can only write enough code to then make that test fail, either through a true test failure or a compilation failure. Then you go back to the production code and you iterate on that cycle until the test is complete. There, you've now worked through red, green, and then you can then take the final step of refactoring that code. So now you have tests that actually you have full confidence are actually testing the code under test 
and then you can refactor the production code to be more in line with, you know, to basically clean it up however you might want to do that while having the full confidence that the tests you wrote actually are ver- are then will continue to verify the desired outcome. It sounds like you are writing tests always against all the code that you write in your app is is written against some test code. Is that right? That's right. What's okay. yeah, what's confusing about that? I have never worked with a lot of unit testing. I've never been on a team that did any kind of unit testing. And so when, whenever we've talked about testing in the past, it's usually been the mechanics of using the testing tools, either the ones built into Xcode or some other framework for testing. And, and I can follow along with that well enough. But for me, I'm just, I'm confused. Like, so if I want to write code that does a transition, or even if I don't write code that does a transition, if I just connect something in a storyboard with to a button that loads, is, it, is that something I need to write a test for? Like, what, what am I trying to test? And, and how granular does that get? So Uncle Bob would tell you that you should strive for 100% code coverage. Now, I think that's kind of a fallacy in that that's, there's, while achievable, a huge cost behind that. I would even advocate starting simpler. Eliminate anything that has to do with the UI, whether it's anima- animation or storyboard. When you, the term unit testing, breaking that up into what is a unit. A unit is really the smallest, smallest standalone piece of code. So usually I think of that as methods in a class you are going to then write an automated test to basically verify that that method does what you want it to do. So just think of a pure model object that is going to be a person, and a person has a first name and a last name. They might have a suffix to their name, and then there is a two-string on that person. Essentially, that, that method is going to have logic around looking at all the components of their name and then returning a string that represents like the string representation of that person's name. This is, this is actually where I would start if you have no experience with unit testing, is to find model classes, st- things that are pretty much standalone. And those are the ones that are most likely easily unit testable. That brings another thing to mind for me. I write a lot of code where I'm doing key value observing a lot. And I know that for iOS devs, that's not the most popular technology. But just as an example, I'm writing these observers binding UI controls, would, would that fall outside of what you'd normally unit test? Or would you unit test that? And if so, what would that look like? Well, um, yeah, uh, the API in iOS is uh, NS Notification Center. I, okay, yeah, yeah. That's I, a, I mean, that's just good. Yeah, and plenty. I definitely, in my unit tests, do things like verify that an observer is added, verify that an observer is will trigger in a selector when the notification is actually posted. Now, some people, this is where the balance of like some of the purists, like Uncle Bob will say, go for 100% code coverage, like regardless of anything else. Yeah, okay, well, while I am testing that my notifications are firing and that the methods are getting called, you know, some of that is redundant with what Apple is providing by their frameworks. Like, in, like I'm verifying that, yes, when a notification is posted, that it is actually triggering in selectors. So in some cases, it's like, am I really just kind of like double checking what Apple's done versus where's the line with actually the code that I've written? So again, you know, thinking even extending that into what you were talking about earlier, like UI, if you want to then involve a storyboard, like if you're going to verify that when you create a button and designate an action for that button, that when the button's pressed, does the method actually get fired versus am I verifying that I've specified that selector to be registered to that button action, you know, I think 
it's there's like the give and take where I don't think anything's as black and white as strive for 100% coverage because you know you're going to end up with redundancy as to what what you know other people might have guaranteed through their API contract. It sounds like in some cases you could end up with more testing code than actual code. Is that true, or is that's definitely true? And I, I wouldn't, I don't have stats from any projects I've written on, but yeah, that's definitely true. So, for example, what might be like a, an if else in a method, you know, that is an if else might be like five lines of code. The corresponding, you're going to have like two test methods for that and XC test test case subclass where each of those methods alone is going to be, you know, a handful of lines. So you're already looking at, at more code than the, the code, the actual production code. We were talking earlier about when uh, you and I were talking before this call around, you know, unit testing things like remote APIs. Following the, the TDD mantra, one of the things it advocates is, is speed. Anything that slows you down in your testing is going to be stuff that's going to make it harder to test harder to execute your flow in TDD. You want to be able to write a test, have immediate feedback that it fails or that you got to the point where it passes. There, I think some people may advocate not writing automated tests for against that for code that actually executes a remote API and or another option that if you don't actually want to execute the API is write a stub for it and in which that some code that's only provided with the test target actually gives a static response to what it would be an a- anticipated API call, that's going to be a much faster response than if you actually are making the remote API call. Another alternative would be, though, for me, I like actually having automated tests that leverage the remote API because you know it is giving me an extra level of comfort that the API call is happening when I want it to, that the response is being handled appropriately. And there's even cases where we found that through te- like our test environments, that server-side code has changed that, or that the server's gone down, and that's been then reflected and discovered in the client-side tests that are then leveraging that API. So in that example, Andy, you mentioned earlier that 100% code coverage isn't the best idea because you're kind of duplicating uh, or you're testing you know, Apple's own frameworks, and you know, I'm sure we can assume that they go through you know, some rigorous testing processes of their own. So I'm curious as to what went, like in that particular example of testing a an API call, a remote API call. What what is it that you're testing? Because if you are looking at the response that this server gave you, then you know, are you are you then again doubling up your testing efforts? Because I'm going to assume whoever's written that server side code probably has a suite of unit tests that they run to make sure that the response that they're handing out is correct and is the correct format and is in JSON and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just curious as to, you know. How would you define the line? Well, first off, what is it that you were testing? But then also, like, how would you define the line between what is client side and what is uh, sort of the remote responsibility? Yeah, that's certainly a valid point. And I think that's why I, when writing code or like collaborating with people on my team, I'm not one to like throw my hands up and be like, oh, well, the other API should be providing this response. So I'm not going to write a test for it. If in my natural TDD flow where I know that I need to cr- I need to code a unit or a class, and that part of that is going to be leveraging a remote API. You know, if my TDD flow leads me to verifying that API response, that that request is made to an API and a response is re- received and then parsed accordingly, I will 
write that test. Like I'm not adverse to it, but I also don't think it might be the best place to start for someone coming in fresh. You know, it, it's all again like layers of confidence that the more you build into your code, that the more confidence you can have one that everything's running correctly, and that then the code can be changed and you're not going to be introducing new defects. Is something like TDD a tough sell when you're doing client work, or, or is it something that you don't even discuss when you know when you're uh, working with clients? And what I mean specifically by that is, you know, Jake raised the point that you could um, quite easily end up with more test code than sort of production code, and you you sort of said, yeah, you know, that's definitely happened in some of the projects we've worked on, and, and obviously, you know, if, when you're working with clients, they usually, you know, unless it's a fixed a fixed contract they might often be paying you by the hour you know or a daily rate or whatever and i'm just wondering if it's a kind of tough sell to them to say well actually we're going to write you know this much code this will be what's in your production app but you know two-thirds of what we deliver for you will actually be test code uh you know and overall it's going to cost this and you know if i was sat on the other side of that table i might be questioning the value of that i mean i understand that there's value in testing don't get me wrong but like from a monetary side um i'm just wondering if it's a tough sell yeah, so I have a couple responses to that question. One, I've, I'll just give the disclaimer that I very I don't often do client work. I mean, I guess you could call my full time employer my client I'm doing work for, um, but it's not normally in like the nature of a of an explicit contract for a, a for a set scope. I can tell you why I do why I believe in TDD. Writing tests after the fact is hard. One, it's like, are you really you really need to be committed to going back and doing it? And often the code that you've written usually doesn't end up to being tested very well. Doesn't end up being structured in a way that's easy to test. Whereas if you do it along the way, you're ensuring constantly that the code you're writing is tested and thus is easily testable. You'll by doing TDD, you'll end up with lots of tests. Like you will end up with covering all that code that you wrote along the way and thus that code tested code is high quality code so if i were having a conversation with a client or even my employer i think that it would give the i would probably present the conversation in the light that like hey look you know we probably both both really value high quality software and this is not to say that i'm going to be writing buggy code if i don't do tde but TDD is identified as an engineering software engineering principle that leads to higher quality code. Is it fair to say that it's higher quality code, but but it is takes longer to write, or do you do you make the time up that you spend writing tests in, you know, not having to go back and fix bugs that you reintroduce? In your experience, obviously, this is going to depend depending on the, the tests and the quality of the tests and who's on the team but in your experience do you find that you can make that time up or is it higher quality code but it also costs more in terms of man hours in order to to get to that level of quality now imagine that there was a world where you 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 could create something that ran through every single test case at the click of a button as fast as your computer could do it and do it every time that you would end up compiling your code mhm that for me, there's no way that that is much cheaper than to have a human being to do that same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And, and then further, that every time you change your code, that you repeat that process, and then also can do it on any combination of iOS version or simulator, 
that then I'm like, that's where I, I start to be like, you know, I don't, I don't see that any human based QA department can mimic that. And did you think testing's got a bad rep? Like for, uh, uh, I wonder if there's a better way to, to pitch that. See, because what I'm thinking of when you're just talking then and, and Jake's kind of, I wonder if you get, you know, your time back in other ways. And, um, I, you know, I was thinking all along that, you know, one value of having a suite of tests is it guards against regressions, you know, and many a time, you know, I've run into a, a problem where I've made some changes and introduced a bug. And if I had a suite of unit tests I could have run after that change, then it would have caught that bug before, you know, that code became public. So there's obviously value in that. But you kind of, your answer went back to Jake and you said, you know, imagine a world where at the click of a button, you know, you could you could have all this stuff automated. And, you know, for Jake, it's still a bit of a tough sell. But then on the flip side, you know, you've got, you've got tools like Fastlanes, which isn't necessarily test related but does you know automate those that kind of task and that's been really well received and everybody loves the fact that you can click a button and it generates all your localized screenshots for you so you'd think there'd be a similar reception for you know click another button and um, we'll run through all your code and make sure it's bug free but there doesn't seem to be that kind of fanfare around testing as there is against these other tools that automate similar processes so do you think that, you know, has testing got a, a bad rep? And is that because, you know, you're having to write more code and, you know, naturally as programmers, we're, we're lazy people? It tastes a lot like eating your vegetables. <laughs> I think the, for me, the aha moments were like those first couple bugs that writing tests caught that I had not caught manually were the, were the eye openers. And like you really have to experience that it's yourself. Like no amount of blog reading, podcast listening, can like give you that that eye opening moment. One other thing I want to mention was along the line we were talking earlier about like where do you draw the lines of like testing third party frameworks, especially ones that might be provided by Apple. There was a, a case in current app I'm working on that we were using UI popover controller to present a, a popover menu for the user to select something, and essentially. There was, I can't, I think it was undocumented, but basically if you did not provide a source rec to that popover as like an extra line of code that on iPad, that line of code would crash. So unless that you had manually, continually like verified that that happened, if unless I had opened iPad and like ran it on iPad to try that, which, you know, I should do, I would not have caught that. Now, the reason I bring that up is, yeah, I should have caught that manually, but what what I can do going forward is one write an automated test for that interaction to make sure that that crash will never happen again. But two, I think that also points to that like stuff we use from Apple or even third party open source isn't perfect. So it's all kind of like a gray area where you have to draw the line for yourself around like where you're going to invest time writing tests because it does, you know, at the at the face of it, it does take more time from like the highest cost person in the software development process, the engineer. I, I have definitely felt like, for me, that the, my lack of experience with, with testing and test-driven development and unit testing is, is definitely a gap in my professional skill set. And so if I wanted to go somewhere, how do I get started? Because it feels like something I would need somewhat of a mentor to help me with. Like, what are the best resources for me to get going to learn this skill set? 
Okay, so if you want pure website, one of the best websites out there for this is, is, is a blog that John Reed maintains called qualitycoding.org. And it's basically a blog solely dedicated to automated testing in iOS. It's a great blog. Check it out. Now, in terms of stuff that I would recommend that you could do, give it a try. You will have, I guarantee, an aha moment of finding a bug through automated tests that you would otherwise have not found till later, potentially after your app had launched. Another, don't go at it alone. So ping pong is uh, basically a process that you can use with a partner in pair programming where you're passing the keyboard back and forth just like you're hitting a ball on a ping pong table. And it relates to TDD and writing tests in that you can go through the TDD flow, red, green, refactor, back and forth with your partner. So the first person writes the test, second person fills in the production code, back to the other person to enhance the test, back to the other person to write more production code. Once you start to develop like this rapport with other people you're working on, and you might even start getting involved in like code reviews with code that has automated tests, another fun thing to do is that when you're reviewing a pull request, for instance, that has code that has automated tests with it, is go through those tests and see if you can then swap around the Boolean logic in the assertions in that test to see if there's one that you can get a false positive pass on. Because what that'll mean is that the person did not verify that the test fails when it should, and thus you're getting like a false sense of security because that test really is not verifying what it's intended to verify. All right. Well, I think our time is up. Thanks, Andy. That was very informative. I really I have a much better picture now uh, than I did when we started. All right, Mick, uh, your 20 minutes have started. What do you have for us today? Okay, well, this is going to be our, our last episode, uh, bar the special one-off. The first episode of next season is, is chances are it's going to come out just before or in the week of WWDC. So I thought it might be fun, as this is the last episode before then, to have a little bit of a like a round table discussion. It's something we've not really done for a while. And just get you guys' thoughts and uh, what you'd like to see at WWDC this year in iOS, OS ten, any you know, any rumors that you've heard. Now before we get into that, I did a little bit of research to see what's come out so far. And unusually, because at this time of the year, all the sort of rumor sites will be flooded with stuff. Um, the only thing that I could dig up was that everybody's expecting this year to be the year that Syria makes the transition to OS X. So um, we'll, we'll see if that's if that's the case. Uh, another rumor was a forty percent thinner Apple Watch, a forty percent thinner Apple Watch Two. So this will replace what you can currently get now. And I think one of the most um, the things that shocked me when I first got my Apple Watch was how deep it is. So, you know, if they can reduce that by almost 50%, then I think that'll be a good thing. And then perhaps the most um, controversial one that's come out is that this rumor that came out, I think it was uh, sometime last week, that Apple have got a secret team working on uh, App Store changes. And this is the ex-IAD team. So not surprisingly, the main thing that... that I know obviously this is all rumor. We don't know if this is fact. We won't find out till WDC. Um, but it's their sort of main thing that they're going to look to implement is uh, paid search result placement, which personally I think is a terrible idea and it's just going to make the the App Store much worse than it is now where you've got all these, you know, free-to-play games making millions of, of dollars and, you know, the, the really creative, really imaginative games can't even get into the charts 
because they're dominated by these free-to-play games. Well, it's those guys that have got all the money, so it's those guys that are going to pay to have their apps placed in the search results. So, you know, it's not really going to help indie developers or, you know, anybody of that caliber. Um, so those are the four things, four or five things, really, that I, I could dig up. Um, before I get on to what I'd like to see, uh, Jake, uh, Andy, if you guys want to jump in and, uh, and offer up some of your thoughts. I haven't uh, seen any rumors lately, and I, I have, as, as time has gone on, I've paid less attention to the rumors. I don't know if that's just me or if it's because the rumors aren't as exciting as they used to be. I mean... Do you think that's a sign of the operating systems becoming stale, then? Is that... I, I wouldn't say stale. I think it's kind of... Well, I, I guess it's two sides of a coin. You could call it stale. I just think of it as kind of the platforms maturing. I mean, there was stuff that was like... Obviously, we're going to want to do certain things, but the hardware, the software just can't quite support it yet or can't quite support it in a way that's a good, smooth experience. But we we just know. I mean, the watch is a good example right now where you know the watch is going to get thinner and faster, right? And that certain things that just are pretty crappy on the watch right now are going to work smoothly in, in, in some future time, within the next five years, you know? And I think with the phone, we've passed all those huge milestones and that could be i don't know that could be cynicism maybe there's still undiscovered huge milestones but for me personally i think well it's the hardware is powerful enough the software is developed enough now that there aren't any real big low-hanging fruit type features that apple's going to add in the next few years just that's my thought just on the watch there do you think i mean the way that apple uh, have introduced the watch is almost similar to the way that they um introduced the original iphone is you know the first one was um really restricted in terms of hardware and you know the the original iPhone OS wasn't opened up till developers it was you know the second generation they don't really open them up as much as as perhaps what they've done in the past so uh, you know again series is a really good example of that you know the first and the second releases of you know watch OS I mean watch kit was dire in terms of what you could do with it you know they they, they claimed um that watchOS allows you to give native apps. They don't because it's still all powered by watchOS. It just means that rather than having that disconnect by, you know, the logic running on the phone and the UI running on the on the watch, both parts now run on the watch, but it's still in a really restrictive environment and the API is nowhere near as fully fledged as something like UIKit. You know, it just worries me that that's, that seems to be the direction they're taking a little bit. I'm hoping when we get to WWDC that they completely, you know, make me out to be a fool and announce loads of great new stuff that we can all take advantage of. But the last couple of years, that's that's kind of the feeling I've got. Yeah, well, with with regard to Siri, they're going to be like, I don't have an Amazon Echo yet, but every podcast and blog and firsthand account I've heard of it is how awesome that it just seamlessly integrates with your home that this thing just plugged in sitting on your counter can hear you anywhere in your house. It's getting frequently updated from Amazon. It's open to third-party developers. And that, like, I don't know how Apple has releases Apple TV. We have a watch now, a phone, and a computer that I have, like, all these different devices in my house, and I still can't say, hey, Siri, set a timer for 15 minutes and need to be, like, actually watching my watch do it over a 30 second period to actually verify that it's like starts the timer at the you know what i asked it to do that actually that brings up a good point i uh i hope um siri apis are that that's the top of my list uh for my wish list for this this year's wwc is is developer facing 
Siri APIs that we can that we can more deeply integrate our data and our information. And, and in connection with that, the um, the core spotlight and some of the other search APIs on the phone. It would be really nice if you could just ask the phone something, and then you could build an app that would respond to that voice query. Um, and I picked up uh, I picked up an Amazon Echo just a week ago. I've been playing with it just for this reason. I just it seems like this new technology. It it's the space where cool things are happening and like new opportunities for new ideas seem to be growing. And so I was like, I got to get one of these and see what it can do and what I can as a developer do with it. But what I really want is all these APIs on my phone, on my watch and on my Apple TV. That's where I really want to be working. But as it is now, Apple hasn't opened that up. So that's definitely my, my number one thing. If we get that this year, I will be thrilled. I mean, depending on what form it takes. And you don't want to have to worry. Oh, am I talking to Siri on my watch? Is my phone around, uh, or is my TV going to pick this up? And I have to use this query when I'm talking to Siri here versus there. Yeah, exactly. And the and the Echo integration. I mean, I haven't played with the developer side yet. I plan to, but uh, it's very cool. I mean, you can you can kind of, from what I understand, you can set up the kind of whatever kind of question structure you need to interact with your data, and then. And then you kind of structure how you want those results presented. And so I have like, I have like, you know, I've got a bunch of ideas of stuff that I would do uh, with, with this Echo, or if I could, preferably with, with my phone and my watch, if, if Apple lets us do that. And I think they will. It's just a question of when. Hopefully it's this year, but. So Andy, have you got, have you got any, uh, have you got a wish list for WWDC this year? I definitely, I, like I said, I don't have an Echo. I'm kind of holding off. I'm trying to figure out, like, if I had $300 to spend right now, would I buy an Amazon Echo, an Apple TV, or a Sonos? And I'm kind of still undecided, so I haven't spent the money yet. I would, I love the Apple ecosystem, and I, I would love it if they unified it through some sort of home present device that was a smarter Siri. I, w- I would love that. Um, I have worn my Apple Watch almost every day since I got it, which was almost the day it shipped. It's hard. People see it on my wrist and they ask me, oh, how do you like it? Would you recommend it? And it's hard for me to say yes. I personally like getting notifications on it. And, you know, every time I work out, I track it on the watch. There's, if you haven't checked out Activity Plus Plus, that was a new app that just came out. And if you get really into, like, gamified if gamification working out helps you check out that app but i would um i you know i think part of the reason that like people are kind of losing or go falling out of love with their watches is not may not be the watch itself but it's like that again what we've all talked about the hardware being slow sdk being limited like it is so frustrating to me like the one that constantly I, I bang my head against is like how slow it is to set a timer that if you manu- on my watch if I manually open the timer app I'm waiting tens of seconds just for the app to launch and it's like how do you how does that set that platform up for success so uh, I, I would love to see some both software and hardware enhancements to make to really compel me to to buy a watch in the future because um, at this point like if the next watch came out like I'm not really sure like that thinness or different stylistic changes would would compel me to buy that yeah i think i think that's a valid point i'm not sure if if the only thing that changed was that it was 40 percent thinner that that would be enough to because i mean they're not cheap and there is a lot of things coming out now a lot of smart watches um or you know if you're using it primarily for 
health and fitness tracking, you know, this, the whole Fitbit range. Fitbit have just released their new Blaze, which is apparently sold in the, you know, they've sold over a million in the first month. So, you know, there are com competition in that specific domain against the Apple Watch. And, you know, when it comes to the watch, I don't know if the brand is, is, is enough, it, you know, like to keep it sell. I mean, I we don't really know how well it's sold anyway, because they kind of roll the sales figures. Um, in in with with kind of the other miscellaneous stuff, they don't really break them out like they did with the iPhone and the iPad and the and the Macs. At the minute, so nobody really knows the true figure anyway. Um, but the uh, only other thing I, I'd be looking for, I was on here to talk about automated testing, and I talked about CI last time. Would be enhancements to the tool suite to do that better. I think one thing right now is every time I have to run automated tests from Xcode that the simulator boots up and the tests run in the context of that simulator. Same thing on my CI box, like you heard last time, that I need physical devices or simulator to run. On a given CPU, I can only run one suite of tests at a time. Uh, if Apple may, I would love to see some changes there. Uh, I heard of another IDE, I think it might have been .NET, where like literally the tests are running every time you save a file, so you're seeing like test pass or failure within the context of the IDE that fast where you don't even manually need to write tests. So um, I think in the past years with Xcode Server and even the enhancements to XC tests that that uh, we'd probably see some improvements this summer as well. I mean, I did have it on my list that, you know, Xcode 8 should focus on, you know, improving what we already have rather than trying to introduce some new um, almost novelty-like features again that they seem to have been over the last couple of years. Then it takes several several iterations and point releases to refine it to the point where it's usable. You know, I, I would like them. I know we probably say this every year that we just would like them to take a year out, and I understand that they can't do that because they have to keep up with the competition. But I mean that that one specific thing you raised there—that's something that's always kind of bothered me a little bit about tests. Is you you would think that they could probably run have the simulator open all the time like with no UI you know and have it running as a process in the background that that can t continually be um, subjected to those tests like you were saying then like as far as I can see it there is no real reason why that needs to be presented you know with the you know in that uh, simulator UI um, it's it's almost just as if they were taking you know taking advantage of a tool that already existed rather than building something specifically for that domain, uh, which you know perhaps isn't the best approach because and this kind of comes down to the you know I I often believe that Apple must have some other tools internally that they use to develop especially when it comes to things like code signing and provisioning and all that kind of stuff and you know you can even bring that into the way that, that we are expected to do tests and even their continuous integration that they released a couple of years ago. Um, you know, people are still heavily dependent on things like Jenkins and Travis because the stuff that Apple delivered just wasn't, you know, what was up to scratch. And it's like, well, are the, are the guys that build this stuff like using it day to day? Because if they were, I'm sure it wouldn't be in half the state that it is now. And that's why I think it'd be great if they could just take, you know, a bit of time one year to really just focus on the tooling and, and improve that rather than, um, you know, do a whole UI refresh, you know, just so it falls into line with Yosemite or El Capitan. I'd much rather have something that looks a little bit out of date that was rock solid than the other way around. 
Yeah, 100% agree. Something that constantly irritates me is that the refactor menu in Xcode has about five or six options in it. And if you try to use any of those in a Swift file, you actually get an error message that says Xcode cannot refactor Swift code. And this has been there since day one. It's still there now. And I'm like, you know, I think that early on, I, I looked to that a lot as like a reason why I was like really hesitant. I was like, okay, is the Swift thing going to stay around if like the tooling doesn't support at this fundamental level? And I, and I still get like source kit crashes in Xcode where like all the syntax highlighting goes gray and like um, the uh, on-demand compilation isn't happening. And I, and I have no idea why that happened. I kind of just start doing command Z until it goes back to normal. But I mean, I, but that is something that really winds me up because you look at you know a company like JetBrains um, with AppCode, like that whole product that they are one of the right, big advantages of that product is how good it it is used. You can use it for refactoring, and as soon as they supported Swift, they had far more refactoring options than what's available in Xcode. And yet Xcode has come out of the company that also developed the language. So if anybody's tooling should be like, you know, leaps and bounds ahead of anybody else's, it should be Apple's. But it's like they're so far behind. You know, it's unbelievable. And this is why I kind of think that the guys, surely the guys can't be using the same tools internally that we have to use externally because you'd just be banging your head against the wall all the time. All right. Thanks, Mick. Uh, your 20 minutes are up. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Andy. It was nice to have you again. No problem. Thanks for having me. If you have any feedback or comments on the podcast, then please get in contact with us at podcast at raywinderlich.com. And don't forget to leave, leave reviews on iTunes. We actually got a ton of new reviews this week, so thank you so much. Um, this is the final episode in this season. Uh, we will have a special episode coming out at some point in between now and the next season. But the first episode of our next season will be coming out June 8th. So look forward to that. But we will take a little break in between. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendell.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.